Happy holidays, everyone. I'm Jim Harold, the host of TV You Grew Up With, and I just wanted to let you know of one of my New Year's resolutions for 2016, and that is to get TV You Grew Up With on a much more regular schedule. I've enjoyed doing the episodes that we have done in 2015, but just got bogged down in my main podcast that I do over at jimherald.com, and uh, this did not get the attention it should have this year. However, in 2016, look for that to change. We hope to bring you many more and many more regular episodes of TV you grew up with. Once again, happy holidays and enjoy this show. You've tuned in to TV You Grew Up With, where we interview the people who created the greatest TV shows ever made. Here's your host, Jim Harold. Welcome to TV You Grew Up With. I am Jim Harold, and so glad to be with you once again, and we do have a treat. We've gotten to talk to some great people on this program before. Donnie Most, Ken Osmond, Linda Gray, Dawn Wells, and today is no exception. We have Kathy Garver on the line. Now, you will remember her as the star of the tremendously popular television series, family affair but she has also garnered acclaim in film stage voiceover work and in many other fields uh, she's won four audis which are the oscar for the spoken word and audiobook narration and she was recently awarded the prestigious lifetime achievement award by the motion picture council for adding to her previously received former child star lifetime achievement award received from the young artist award foundation with a graduate degree from UCLA and studies in the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London, Kathy has further expanded her skills to writing, producing, lecturing, and teaching. And we are so glad to have her with us today. She has a book out called Surviving Sissy, My Family Affair of Life in Hollywood. And we're so glad to have her with us. Uh, Kathy Garver, welcome to the program today. Thank you, Jim. I'm delighted to be able to talk to you today. My goodness, did I do all those things? Yes. <laughs> as you know, I'm listening to you introduce me, I have, as old as I am, a 24-year-old son, and I told him, I said, well, I'm going to get the Life Achievement Award. And he said, yeah, Mom, but you're not dead yet. That's right. That's just... Oh, thank you, honey. <laughs> there's still... There's still... Up, and then, you know, I, I always try to do that in these shows because I get to talk to so many interesting people. And sometimes when they're in an iconic show like Family Affair that has played for years and years and you're ingrained in people's memory, that's great on one level, but in another level, it, it could, I'm guessing, not having experience, but I'm guessing it could be a, a little frustrating because you could say, hey, that was a great chapter, but there's a lot more. Well, it isn't so frustrating, but I must say, when people read my book, uh, Surviving Sissy, My Family Affair of Life in Hollywood, one of the first comments that come out of their mouths are, oh, I didn't know you did all those other things. And I said, well, yes, I've been in this business since I was seven years old, uh, younger than Sissy when she first appeared on Family Affair, and I am still going with two movies to do next year and uh, two that I did this year that are coming out in 2016 and two more books next year. So, yeah, I'm like that Energizer Bunny. I just keep going and going and going. Now, the thing is, is that it did start for you before Family Affair. I know you had been in some films, including uh, one of the greatest movies of all time, and we still see it on the air every year, The Ten Commandments. 
Right. And that was a kind of an auspicious beginning to my film career, I must say. And I was originally hired just as an extra to be one in the hordes of slaves that are joining each other in the exodus portion of the movie. And I remember so vividly, and again, it's chronicled in my book, but I am just to be on a wagon uh, holding a little lamb going uh, along the road. And we were preparing for the scene, and all of a sudden, I heard this great big voice boom out, don't let that little girl's face get in the camera. And I said, who is that? Is that God? We are doing the Ten Commandments. It was coming from way above me, but it happened that that was Cecil B. DeMille, who is a great director. (laughs) Of course. And so um, after I did the scene with my face hidden, uh, he descended from this great big crane that he was on, and I got off the wagon through the help of the assistant director, and we talked. And he wrote scenes into the movie for me with Charlton Heston and uh, some of the other actors there, and I was on the movie for two months. So that was an expansion of one good day's work. Yeah, that's amazing. So, uh, you know, that old saying, I believe it goes back to Sunset Boulevard. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. It was really uh, literal for you. (laughs) Right. Yes, exactly. Now, let's talk about Family Affair. Now, uh, I remember as a kid watching uh, it. I was a little young. I mean, it was on while I was around, but just very, very young. I remember catching it in repeats. I was mesmerized always by that that uh, opening with the the rotating jewels in the the sound. And I wish we didn't have rights issues or I just play it right now just to refresh everybody's memory. But if you know what I'm talking about, you'll never forget a very memorable opening. How did Family Affair happen for you? Well, I first I'm, I'm going to comment on that kaleidoscope because um, there were a lot of firsts that occurred with Family Affair and the kaleidoscope with the music da 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 da. This is part of my singing career, Jim. Very good, very good. And you can have that without paying any rights fees. Yes, yes. Because it was one of the first shows in color. And so that was, we, the producers wanted to make sure that the people knew, well, this show is in color, no longer black and white. So it was an innovative show wow. on many levels. One wouldn't think that, but it was like one of the first dysfunctional or a different kind of family with the uncle raising the kids. So, um, but now to your question, I got that. Um, I was going to UCLA, and I got a call from my agent, and they, uh, she says, well, they need another cast members to complete the cast for this new television series. I said, okay, great. Um, however, they wanted a blonde, blue-eyed girl, and at that time, my hair was not blonde. It is now. It was very dark brown, and I had dark eyes. They didn't have those colored contact lenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my mom came over. She sprayed my hair with this stuff called streaks and tips uh, to supposedly lighten the hair. But I go on the interview, and I'm talking to the producer, creator, Ed Hartman, and we are chatting. And he said, what's wrong with your hair? I said, my hair? He said, yes, it's green. I I know there had been been a movie with the boy with the green hair, but this was the girl with the green hair. 
Exactly. <laughs> but I guess that broke the ice and we chatted and just had a wonderful time. And I did a screen test and the rest, as they say, is history. Now, um, what was that like working with people like Brian Keith, who was a movie star at the time, uh, Sebastian Cabot, uh, working with some, uh, uh, some powerful people there? What was that like? Well, it was interesting that a movie star would do a television series. And uh, that was part of Don Federson, who was the producer, the executive producer's method. He was able to get these big stars like Fred McMurray from My Three Sons, which he also produced in Family Affair, by promising they would only have to work 30 days uh, to do 32 episodes, and then they could go off and do their movies Plus, another innovation, he would give them a percentage of the show, Uh a financial percentage. So that was the biggest allure of all. But I had worked with Brian years before, and I had not seen him in like, you know, 10 or 15 years. But both he and Sebastian were so accomplished, they had totally different styles. Sebastian, it was very difficult for him to learn lines. So he would ponder over each and every word to get it exactly right. And over the weekend, he would study and study. And he'd come to the set on Monday and he'd go over his dialogue with the dialogue coach. So he was fully prepared. Brian, on the other hand, would come in on Monday and say, oh, okay, what do we have today? Is that, uh, is that it? Uh, 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 okay, let's go. So he was a quick study. He was a quick study, and he went like uh, moment to moment, whereas Sebastian was much more analytic, and he would study the script and analyze it. Um, When I went to RADA to the Royal Academy in London, I saw, well, this is the way that the English really approach the acting. But it it was really good to see the two different styles, and they made a great dynamic. And then my own style of acting was an amalgam of both of them. That I just did both. And uh, I do that to this day, Jim. And uh, it's worked very well for you. Now, um, so Brian Keith, basically, I'm guessing you guys would shoot your scenes around him. He would shoot his scenes, uh, get everything he needed done, and then you would shoot your scenes around him if he wasn't in it and that kind of thing? Yes, and that's very difficult sometimes. Um imagining, and uh, there were a lot of stories that that happened because we were shooting that way. And also, I was like the the workhorse of the series because Brian had that restriction put on him, and Sebastian was not in the greatest of health at all times. The kids could only work eight hours, uh, and three of them were devoted to school. So there I was, over 18, young, vital, healthy. So I would do all... The, the shows in the morning, and then I the scenes in the morning, and then I would do the close-ups at the end of the day where everybody had gone home. So imagine, if you will, Jim, yeah. and your listeners, that there I am uh, at the end of the day with the bags coming down, and I am shooting my close-up opposite Buffy. But Buffy is gone for the day. So there is this burly assistant director from New York with a cigar out of his mouth. (laughs) And I'm saying, Buffy, let's go to the park. Okay, Sissy, come on, let's go. Hurry up, Buffy. I'm coming, I'm coming. (laughs) So there was was some um, challenges to do that show. Yeah, and I don't think people... um understand that they think that everything is uh necessarily uh taped 
or filmed uh, in sequential order, but that's not the case. It, and it was even interesting to me the way that they would edit all the different pieces together. And even then, they would put the, like on a game board, shuffle around. Uh, so sometimes in the script, um, there would be a scene at the end. But when it showed, well, that end scene was at the beginning, and the beginning scene was in the middle, but it all flowed very smoothly and all went up to an arc and then the conclusion. Now, the, when the show started, you were portrayed in the show as a teenager or a, as underage, uh, I think 15, 16 years old, something like that. But you were actually, as you said, in college already. So that would be a little challenging, too, to play younger. Well, I'm still playing younger, Jim. <laughs> Aren't we and all? I'm going to play it as long as I can. <laughs> but that had to have its challenges. Well, it, it was, but it's like any role. You know, um, I generally speaking, now my next book is uh, Ex-Child Stars, Where Are They Now? And in it, I do address the fact that most producers, and I do it in this present book, Surviving Sissy, uh, and most producers look for um, their actors that are portraying children to be smaller than they usually are. You look at Barry Livingston or Sweet uh, Mickey Rooney, who died recently, but we're little people. I'm five foot one. So because of that, um, we are able to play younger, younger characters and younger actors. Uh, and so that is sometimes a blessing for the, the child star until they get to adulthood and say, well, it isn't just predicated on that you're little and, and you're over 18 or that you are even 10 and could play a six-year-old. Um, I was playing... Uh, when I did uh, one of uh, Death Valley Days, I was 18 playing a 12-year-old. Ronald but, Reagan, Death Valley Days. Yes, but I looked I looked young, and so I was playing a role, basically, um, where everybody else was pretty much playing themselves. I was playing the role of Sissy and a younger character and very wholesome. Not to say that I'm not awesome and sweet and dear, <laughs> but there was an evil side to Sissy. Ah. Uh, that was hidden. <laughs> But uh, and the kids were just basically playing themselves, and Brian was playing himself. He loved kids. Sebastian, you know, was uh, a little bit more dignified and stalwart than he was in real life. But I was really playing a, a younger, sweet, nice kid, and then going to discos at night. <laughs> and I'm going to ask you about that kind of push and pull between the spirit of the times and, and the show a little bit. But first, I want to talk to you about your younger co-stars, and this is Jones, Johnny Whitaker. Um, what was the dynamic uh, like uh, with them? Um, they came from two very different families. Johnny was from a Mormon family with seven brothers and sisters, and Anissa had one brother, and her mother was divorced. So that established, established their particular family dynamic and the way that they were treated at home, as, and then that affected the way that they were on the set. Um, and Anissa was two years older than Johnny, so they didn't have really a lot in common. And when they were not filming, then everybody went back, you know, including me and Brian and Sebastian, to their own separate families. And when you're working on a series and especially me, 6.30 to 8.30 at night, perhaps, it, it's nice to use that time as a respite to be with your, your loved ones and your family. So not everybody spent a lot of time off 
uh, the set with each other. Occasionally, I mean, I went to Sebastian's for dinner, and Anissa spent the night a couple times. Uh, but and Johnny and and Anissa's dynamic was that Anissa always felt that she was older than Johnny, and so that she had to protect him a little, and that she was always worried. <laughs> Women are like that sometimes. I don't know. <laughs> now I I have to mention this. It's it's unfortunate. It's very sad. But Anissa Jones, 1976, passes of a, a of apparently an accidental drug overdose. Um, I mean, that had to be uh, after working so many years with someone, and I, I assume a TV series is uh, you work a lot of hours and and you become involved. That had to be that had to be a difficult thing. She was an absolutely adorable, uh, smart. Uh, good. She had a wonderful spirit child. And again, I talk about this in my ex-child star book next year because this has happened to so many kids. And they get, after the series, Anissa did not want to do any more uh, show business work. She was offered the exorcist role and all of that, but she just so wanted to be a kid. And, and not a kid, but she wanted to be herself. And now, at this time, she was 13 um, at the end of the show, and here she is still carrying around her Mrs. Beasley doll with the short skirts and the little ponytails, right. and she wanted to be with her peers. Unfortunately, the ones that she hooked up with were on drugs and alcohol. And the same thing happened to Johnny, but in a different way, because after the series, he was still in the entertainment world, but then passing on to uh, adulthood and young manhood, he had a difficult time. He didn't have any of his money. Um, his parents had spent his money, and he had just a, a percentage of it. So he was on drugs and alcohol and almost penniless. And his family, uh, his Mormon family and brothers and sisters, and came in and did an intervention and said, look, you either get off drugs and alcohol, or we're going to divorce you as a family. Mm. Well, that was his wake-up call. Otherwise, perhaps he would have ended up like a niece. And unfortunately, as so many of our, our childhood, uh, childhood stars have done, like Dana Plato and Rusty Hamer and you know some of the rest. And it's interesting because I've had the opportunity to talk to some people who had this kind of fame uh, early on. Uh, I think about uh, Judy Norton, who was on the Waltons and, and so forth. And, and some people seem to, you know, and, and you were a little bit older, so you really, even though you played a child, you, you weren't really a child star. But some people, things go so well for them. You think, of course, of Ron Howard, whom I know you know, and uh, and we could talk about some of your work in, in his films in terms of your voice work. But um, people like that who turn out great and everything goes well, and then you have these these sadder tales um, Gary Coleman, Dana Plato, as you said, Anissa. Um, what do you think the difference is there? Well, actually, I did start when I was seven, and and had. Well, that's true. That's true. I was thinking. You know, about, I was thinking in saying, relation to your order. Yeah, your 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 role yeah. in family affair. Yeah. So I started as as a child and was able to relate to the limelight and the publicity and um, people taking care of things for you. And I think there are maybe three or four different major reasons why some are able to jump the hurdle of being a child star and be a successful adult, even if they don't uh, keep on doing uh, roles in the movies. Uh, we have 
uh, lawyers, uh, Sheila James, that was, she was in Dobie Gillis and she was working as a child. She became a great, wonderful lawyer. There was, uh, uh, one of the Mouseketeers who is now the head of the makeup department. But I think it's the foundation of the family, how good the family is, uh, how supportive they are, um, and the, the uh, orchestrating of their relationship with the other children in the family. It's the parents not using the child as their own personal bank and going in and making withdrawals whenever they want. It is an education I have a master's degree from from theater arts, and going to school. I and when I talk and I make speeches, et cetera, it's very important that the actor gets a, a wide liberal education, so they just don't have this tunnel vision of oh, this is the only thing I can do, and it's such an emotional thing. There is the business of show business, and it's important that uh, actors understand that. Uh, way of it because you act and you make a lot of money, then you make nothing. Then you act and make a medium amount of money, then you make nothing. So you have to make an even plane of how you are going to spend your money, how you're going to budget. And the last and most important thing, I never took drugs. I cannot take drugs. I can drink Chardonnay, which I love, and I live close to <laughs> Napa in Northern California, and so I like my chill glass of Chardonnay, but I am thankfully not an addictive personality. So, um, and there, there are different ways that one, I believe, can undo stress, uh, et cetera. So that's the reason, and those are some of the main reasons. But I talk about that more in my Ex-Child Star book. Now, um, after Family Affair, uh, you went on and you did all of this voiceover work and all of these different things. Tell us about life after Family Affair, immediately after, and what you kind of grew into. After Family Affair, I went to London and to England, and I went to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. I, uh, there was an initial reason for going over there, which uh, is in my book about going to Israel, which was an interesting experience. But when I came back, I started doing a lot of dinner theater, uh, which was very prevalent and a good thing at the time, and I had just come from analyzing scripts and doing plays. So I went in that direction. And then, uh, I think I got married then. I've been married forever, it seems, 35 years. <laughs> but I may have gotten married at that time. But uh, I got into voiceover. And I've done like five animated series, the most well-known of which is uh, Spider-Man and his amazing friends, where I play <laughs> Firestar. And I've done then like 60 audiobooks. I love that. And I have a little studio in my house. And I just taught... Uh, and I teach in San Francisco, so I just taught a class in narrating audiobooks. And uh, oh, I don't know if you have time. I have a short story about... Oh, please do. Uh, well, this was just about Amy Tan, who was a wonderful author that wrote uh, Bones and also this book, Saving Fish from Drowning. So um, I, at that time directed her in her own audio rendition of the mm -hmm. book that she had written. Mm -hmm. So we were nominated for this Audi, as you, in my introduction, it said was the Oscar for the written word. And so I called Amy and I said, Amy, we were nominated for the Audi and now we've won the Audi. And she said, yeah, but when they first called, I thought I'd won a car. <laughs> No cars for us, but Crystal Plaques. 
That's a good one. Now, I want to talk to you about voice work because I have a great amount of admiration for people who uh, do voice work. And, and the thing is, is I think many people don't realize when they're watching these, um, and I wasn't aware of your voice work. Um, the, I apologize for their ignorance on my part, but many of these commercials and things, they're actors you see in movies and TV series, unless you're really paying attention that it's people like Tim Allen and before he passed away, Jack Lemon uh, doing Honda commercials. Uh, people don't realize there's a lot of actors out there that they know that are doing this. And it really is a, I mean, it takes a heck of a skill set to do that job and do it well. Well, yes, even Brian Keith was doing Wells Fargo commercials toward the end of his career, right before he uh, passed on. And it is because people, you know, not seeing the face, you know, just hear a voice. And plus, actors are so facile and they can change their voice. So if they're going to play, you know, something else, you, they may be talking like this. And so you really have no idea or they may be doing something more intimate that you didn't know that their voice was like that. So beyond maybe not recognize them, recognizing them because you don't see their face, et cetera, then there's the ability that they've changed their voice entirely and you'll never be able to recognize them. And in some ways, I think, uh, again, it could be more challenging in a different kind of way than uh, just uh, straight acting from the standpoint of when you're acting physically in a in a play, in a movie, in a television program, you have your whole body to tell the story. With this, you're trying to tell the story with your voice, and then if it's with something animated, you have to make sure that it works with whatever the animation is. I mean, I think it's quite a. I mean, I don't. I I I envision a lot of people um, see that job and say, Oh, I could do that. And I think it's a lot harder than people, uh, give voice actors credit for. Well, yes, because you do have to use your whole body to make it really real. I also teach, um, ADR, which is looping. It's a, it's a process that's used in post-production where one puts their voice in. Now, in order to make things sound real, you really have to use your mind and your body as well as your spirit to be totally involved in what you're doing. It, this is what I was just telling my, my students last night. So you are not just reading words on a page because that's very boring and it doesn't uh, you know, get the point across that you want to do. And animate means to bring alive. So in order to make animation live, you really have to invest all of you. And it is a, a skill. I'm a big fan of old time radio and have a lot of the archives and listen to them. And it's very enjoyable. And you think that in many ways that art form is dead, but it's still alive with people like you doing voiceovers. And there's even a little bit of revival of audio drama. I believe you did uh, uh, at least one of the Twilight Zones, uh, the the radio redo that was done, I believe, in the 90s. So it's still out there. It might be a little harder to find, though. Oh, it is growing. Uh, and I do uh, some of the old-time radio conventions where we do recreations. And I did five of those Twilight Zone uh, radios oh, wow. where my friend Carl Amari in Chicago took got the rights to the original Twilight Zone TV shows and had them 
uh, put into a radio form. But now there are things called audio theater, and it is a compilation of a lot of actors coming together and doing the scripts and then live presentations of those as well. So with all of our technology and different ways to get content, you can download many radio scripts. You, you know, you'll be able to hear them on your watch pretty soon. You'll just put your ring up to your ear and, and be able to listen to a radio drama. And audiobooks are fantastic. I love audiobooks. In fact, Audible has been a sponsor of one of my other podcasts since 2009, and big fan of that that form as well. And that just seems to be growing and growing with smartphones and so forth, along with podcasts like this one. Um, audio seems to be in a, like a, a second golden age. I think so. Uh, because people are on the move and they're on the computer or they're on the phone and to be able to receive entertainment and information through your phone or uh, other small devices, it, it is, it's, it's really grown. And I'm, I personally am very glad to see that because one can go on for a long, long time and it doesn't matter how old you are. Oh, I hate to say that we're having a big anniversary of family affair next year. So we're planning some, some things. I'm not going to say what year it is um, that <laughs> we're celebrating. But as a matter of fact, I have to go uh, record an audiobook right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to ask you one more question before we go and then ask you where people can find the book and more information about everything you do. You're flipping through the channels. You come upon an episode of Family Affair. What's your reaction? Oh, I, I like it. You know, I, it's uh, interesting to me. Well, the worst thing about it is you can't lie about your age. Um, and I've been trying to do that for many years. But <laughs> when people see something and they say, oh, I saw that when I was, you know, whatever age they were when they saw it. Or then I said, oh, yeah, that was on in, hmm. Okay, so uh, <laughs> that's my initial reaction that I have to be truthful in my life. About my age, at least. Well, honestly, I saw your picture, and uh, you're lovely. So, so do do not do not beat yourself up over that. Uh, I uh, want to thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Now, where can people go to find out the information about this book and everything that you do? And maybe we can talk to you when the uh, next book comes out. That sounds great, Jim. Thank you. Yes, uh, Surviving Sissy: My Family Affair of Life in Hollywood is now available. It uh, launched September first. I am happy to report that it was number one on the Amazon for uh, memoir and Hollywood history, and I just won the award for best nonfiction, uh, People's Choice Award. So people can get this book at either Amazon.com or um, they can go to my website, which is KathyGarver.com, that's K-A-T-H-Y-G-A-R-V-E-R, to get an autographed copy. Or they can go to Roman.com, R-O-W-M-A-N.com, which is my publisher. But, of course, everyone can go to Amazon, as we know, or your favorite. Um, Barnes & Noble has it, your, your favorite brick-and-mortar uh, little indie stores. They all have it, as well as some of the other online uh, outlets. So it's out there, and they're great Christmas presents. Um, and it's really it's an inspiring book. 
you know, I didn't mean it to be <laughs> inspiring, but as I was writing my story and putting it together with my thread theory about how everything is attached, it came out to say, you know, you just keep trucking, you just keep going along, persevering, perhaps reinventing yourself somewhere along the line, but, um, you know, it has a little guide for people to just keep doing uh, as best as they can every day. So that's my book, That's Surviving Sissy, My Family Affair of Life in Hollywood, and my ex-child star book will be out in March of 2016. And I hope everybody gets my book and enjoys reading it. I hope that they do too. You knew her as Sissy from Family Affair, and now you know she's a very nice, special, and multi-talented lady. Kathy Garver, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jim Harold. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to TV you grew up with, and we will talk to you next time. And as they say, stay tuned. Bye-bye, everybody.